Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word and and we dig into this super important topic of relationships, of marriage, of friendship, of husband and wife and parents and kids, Lord, we know, and you know them even more than we do, the, the pain and the difficulty that people have in this area, Lord, this super important area of our lives can also be the most painful. And uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would provide healing, Lord, that you would provide understanding, Lord. And most importantly, we just pray that we would just marvel at your good gifts, even as Gabe was talking about during Call to Worship, that every good and perfect gift is from you. You're the Father of lights, and you rain them down on us. And that includes the gift of kids and marriage and family and work and all the things that we're going to talk about. And we just pray, Lord, that our dominant um, experience would be one of seeing your goodness and generosity. And we pray, Lord, that your gospel, the, the message of your son Jesus, would so strengthen us to live out this design. And Lord, that we would rely on him when we fall short of it. And Lord, we'd be comforted by him when, when people fall short of us, when people, when people let us down, when people Make us hurt in this area, we pray, Lord, that we would lean fully on your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you're so good, and your ways are so good. Help us to delight in your ways and to live them, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a new series for now. I'm calling it Generous Design, and uh, the reason why I'm calling it Generous Design is I want to look at God's generosity in designing us, male and female, in giving us work and friendship and in giving us sex, in giving us parenting, all these kind of good gifts that we see in Genesis 2. And each week we're going to give away a few books. And so this week I've got seven copies of Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage. is a great book on marriage. And if you are in a place where you're like, I want to develop a more biblical view of marriage, we'd love for you to come down and grab one of these. These are not decorations, okay? These are not for you to put on your bookcase so people can see that you're interested in a biblical view of marriage. So if you're ready to read them, in other words, then we'd love for you to have them. And each week I'll have a different book dealing with some of the topics that that we're going to deal with. So this morning we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2. And, you know, if you hadn't grown up in the church, you might think this is an odd place to go. You might wonder, like, why should we look at this very ancient text as if it somehow informs modern relationships? If you grew up in the church, you've been in the church, you've heard messages on this, you might be like, oh yeah, Genesis 2, perfect place to go. But for a lot of people, maybe you, you're thinking, this seems odd to me. It's thousands of years old, it's about some couple I never knew, and somehow my relationships are supposed to be patterned after this. And the reason though, guys, the reason why we see Genesis 1 and 2 as a paradigm, as God's design for relationships, is because that's the way Jesus viewed these passages. When Jesus was asked questions about relationships, about men and women, and questions about marriage and divorce and all that, he always came back to Genesis 1 and 2. And since we're Christians, we follow Jesus, and Jesus believed that this was a paradigm for us to follow. And by the way, Genesis was really old 
in Jesus' day too. We think like, oh, it's so old. Well, it was very old then. And yet he saw it as a design for our relationships. And so what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 really is the architect of reality has given us a blueprint for how humans have been designed and how their relationships are to work. It would be extremely wise to take it seriously, wouldn't it? The architect of reality, your creator. It would be crazy to ignore it. Um, For example, it's hot again. Maybe you noticed. But it's hot again. Imagine that you wanted to cool your house, and so you decided to take your lawnmower and attach it to your window as a window fan, okay? It would be loud. It would be stinky. Your children would have bloody stumps for limbs, right? It wouldn't go well. Why? It's a fan, right? No, you're not following it by the creator's intentions. You're not seeing what the creator intended it to be, and you're using it in a way it wasn't intended, and so that's why it's a big mess. In the same way, if we ignore God's design for marriage and family in Genesis 1 and 2, it's going to make a big mess. It has made a big mess. It's made a big mess in our culture, and it's made a big mess for all of us. We've all made a mess of it. And um, I'm well aware, guys, of the pain, as I was praying, of the pain that surrounds this topic. So as we're talking about the ideals of, you know, relationships between men and women and, and marriage and family, I'm well aware that there's a lot of pain there. Even if you've done everything to follow the Lord, which none of us have, there's going to be some pain. Some of you have experienced abuse, abandonment, divorce you didn't want, death of a spouse, infertility, uh, infidelity, unwanted singleness. Some of you have experienced same-sex attraction. Some of you perhaps have experienced gender dysphoria. Some of you probably have had great trouble with your kids. Some of you have great trouble with your parents. Some of you maybe are just plain unhappy and lonely in marriage. Our world has fallen, and it's complicated by sin. But I still think it's worth going back to God's design here and looking at it because it really is so good. And though, yes, sin has made a mess of things, there's something really beautiful here that we should praise God for, and we should, by the power of the Spirit, endeavor to live and to get back to. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to show you how amazingly generous God's design is. Our our culture tends to view God's design for family and marriage as, and sex as restrictive, you know, kind of a straitjacket, something that doesn't quite fit us that we have to wear. But it's totally opposite, guys. As you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's so good and so generous. G.K. Chesterton said that the chief aim of God's commands is to give room for good things to run wild. The chief end of God's commands is to give room for good things to run wild. And I think you'll agree, by the end of Genesis 2, good things are running wild. There's a good design here. And I also love, guys, that God has designed marriage, and then he's communicated that design for marriage in a story. It's kind of fun. Because it could just be a list. Husbands do this, wives do that, and certainly the Bible has that. But here we have it as a story. And I think it's really important for us, all of us, not just me, to learn to tell the story. And so as we're going through this, I want you to like learn to tell the story of Genesis 2 because it's a very compelling story. It's a very beautiful story. And if you're going to communicate the values, the the values of the Bible, the values of God to our culture, telling the story is the best way to start. Okay. So we have the very best story. I mean, you think about the other stories that people have out there. You should ask them to tell their story. You know, the materialist story. Materialist story is you're here because of random chance. There's no purpose to your life. And no one will remember you and anything you did 
you know, thousands of years from now, the sun will eventually burn out and heat death of the universe. It's an awesome story, you know, like, but we can still be happy along the way, you know, it's like, it seems awfully bizarre. We have the best possible story, guys. When you read through scripture, it's a, it's a beautiful story. And you know what? It's true, which is a real benefit. And this story, guys, starts with God. It starts with a personal being who had no beginning and no end, who decides to create this entire universe. He creates not just matter. He creates space. There was no space before him, before he created. Um, There was no time. So he creates matter and space and time. In verse 26 of chapter 1, we see God saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice something interesting about God here. He's in us. Did you see it? Verse 26, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. You know, you think like, what's God's preferred pronoun? A plural pronoun, which is interesting. He's in us in an hour. And, and this is really important, guys, because the fact that God is Trinity, that he's one God, three persons, means that he is love and generosity in his very being. He's not a solitary God. He's one God, three persons. Because if he were only a one God, one person type of God, he would have created perhaps out of loneliness or out of need. He couldn't be love in his very being because before creation, he had nobody to love. You'd have to feel sorry for him, right? What was he doing? You know, he had nobody to love. Nobody didn't know. But that's not the case. In the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been in relationship with one another, loving one another from all eternity. The gods of the ancient world, when Genesis 1 was written were gods that needed people. It says that they created the people because they needed slaves to work for them. You know, they were solitary, lonely gods, just like the people who invented them. But the one true God, guys, is Trinity. He has no needs outside of himself. He is a community of three persons. I love what the USC philosophy professor Dallas Willard said when he was asked, what was God doing before he created the world? Have you ever wondered that? What was God doing before he created the world? And the professor Dallas Willard, he said, he was enjoying themselves. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? What was God doing before he created the world? He was enjoying themselves. This was Father, Son, and Spirit enjoying one another. God is love because he's always loved, the love between the three persons of the Trinity. And so the Trinity is the only way that you can have a God who is all about giving himself, not about taking. Jonathan Edwards described God creating the world as a fountain overflowing its banks, that, that the eternal love between the persons of the Trinity spilled over in creation. And, and above all, guys, he loves human beings the most. Very clear he loves human beings the most. He made them not to be his slaves, but to be his kids. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's generous design for relationships. And the first thing we see is that God generously designed us for himself, He made us in his image. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so this is the amazing thing about being human, is there's nothing else in all of creation that's been said to have been made in his image. Not angels, not supernovas, not stars, not the most amazing thing you've ever seen. None of those things have been said to be made in God's image, only human beings. And guys, this is the most solid basis for all human rights. You know, this is actually what our modern world's human rights are based on. It's a foundation we've forgotten. It's a foundation we think, well, we could get rid of 
Genesis 1 and everything would be fine. It won't be fine. It's like removing the foundation from the house you're living in. That all of human rights are actually based on this idea that human beings are made in his image. James 3 says that we should never curse any person because they're all made in the likeness of God. And that goes for people despite what sex they are or race they are or sexual orientation or activity or, you know, their religion or their abilities, you know, whether they're yet born or not, you know, uh, whether they're disabled or not. Every single human being is of incalculable worth because they're made in God's image. What an honor. You just realize that when you woke up this morning, you're kind of grampy and, you know, you kind of looked at yourself in the mirror and weren't real impressed. (laughs) You've been made in the image of God. No other thing in all of creation reflects God more than human beings. And so God generously designed us in his image. He generously designed us male and female. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his image. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is so cool. God didn't just make one kind of human. He made two kinds of humans, right? He makes male and female, men and women. And our world's a weird place right now. But these kind of things are debated, you know? There's currently a lot of debate in the world about the givenness of male and female. Like, is your gender something that you are given at birth, or is it something that you discover over time? Notice that the first time that human beings are mentioned in Scripture, they're mentioned as being made male and female. And Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 19. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus has weighed in on this debate, right? That gender is not something we discover in life. It's something we're given at creation. And we need to be very sensitive, guys. I mean, there is a thing of gender dysphoria. There are things where people have difficulties with these things. But the facts are the same, right? And that's that God creates human beings, male and female. And and it's such a generous thing to do. I mean, think of it, guys. Like, how many of you men would like a world where it was just men? Perhaps you're just like boxing all the time, you know, or something like that. Or women. How many of you women would like a world that's all women? Like where Wonder Woman came from. You know, it's just all women. How many people would actually like that? No. Guys, this is a beautiful picture. This is a beautiful design. We're going to look at manhood and womanhood later and how the roles of men and women differ in the church and and in the home. But it's a great gift, guys. It's a great gift that men and women reflect the image of God in distinct ways. And that it's not about all human beings being exactly the same. It's not about unison. It's about harmony the beautiful harmony of men and women. God generously made us for himself. We can see that because when you read Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is zooming in on a part of Genesis 1. It's zooming in on day 6. And it's zooming in because it's zooming in on the thing that the Lord's most interested in. He's most interested in the humans. He's most interested in his children. Look at at 2.7. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. This is really cool, guys, because in the rest of creation, he's speaking, let there be light, let there be planets, let there be stars, let there be giraffes, right? All that kind of stuff. But to make humans, he stoops down and he gets real personal and he forms them out of the dust of the earth and then he (sighs) breathes his breath into them and makes them alive. He's really into people. He's really excited about this, this human he's made. So God made us for himself. God generously designed us for the world. We've actually been generously designed. God has created us 
to be a blessing to the world, to fill it with the glory of God. And you can look at Genesis 1.28 for that. God blessed them, the humans that he made, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the living things that move on the earth. Guys, if human beings were made in his image to be little reflectors of his glory, you know, it's like the glory of God coming down and reflecting off of humans so we fill the earth with the glory of God. If human beings were created to reflect his glory, we can bless the world most by filling the world with lots and lots of other image bearers. Isn't that cool? He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We have a funny thing right now, you know? We're a species that really hates ourselves for some reason. You know, we're like, ah, too many humans. You know, like, we don't want so many. We're destroying the world and all those kind of things. The Bible has the opposite view. It says that the best way that we can actually bless the world is to fill the world with lots and lots of little image bearers. Good job on that, church. You guys have really been getting after it. Good job. You guys have been fulfilling this. Kids, you kids that are here, you were created to reflect the goodness of God. You're not a burden on the environment. You're not too many. You know, you were created to reflect the goodness of God. And so we're excited you're here. We're excited you exist. You know, we want to help you to do that as best you can. God generously created us to be a blessing to the world also through our vocation, through our work. And we can see that in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Okay, so this is work. This is work or vocation before the fall. God created us. He actually created that Garden of Eden to be a place for Adam to work. God's generously given us work or vocation. Vocation is a word that we don't think of very much anymore, but vocation is from the Latin word calling. We have a calling. We have a work to do. The Lord called Adam to work in a way to bless the world. The original plan, it seems, was for Adam to work and cultivate the garden so that it would spread over the whole world, you know, so that God's kingdom would advance over the whole world, that he would spread image bearers throughout the world, and that they would work and create God-honoring culture that would fill the world. Guys, your ordinary work is your most common way to love and serve your neighbor. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. You know, a lot of us, you know, it's California, so we work as hard as we can to just try to afford to live here. But the real reason for your vocation is it's your most common opportunity to love and serve your neighbor. That's what it's about. And whether that's your vocation out in the workplace or that's your vocation as a homemaker, your work is your most common opportunity to love and serve your neighbor, which is the second greatest command. So it's kind of a big deal. And so we've been generously designed to bless the world through our work and through filling it with image bearers. For those of us, for those of you who don't have kids, you're still called to fill the world with image bearers by making disciples as a spiritual father or mother. And then we have our work. And so God's generously designed us for the world. He's also generously designed us for each other. God didn't just design us for a relationship with himself, but that we would have meaningful, satisfying, deep, enjoyable relationships with each other. Isn't that cool? God's the one that actually noticed this. Look at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This is interesting. This is before the fall. This is before sin. And the Lord isn't like, I'm not enough for you. He actually designed human beings to be this way. This is a feature, not a bug. That you need human friendship is a feature, not a bug. This is something that he's designed you for. The fourth century theologian Gregory of Nancy he said this, if anyone were to ask me, 
what is the best thing in life, I would answer, friends. Isn't that great? Don't you agree? Isn't one of the most wonderful things in life is friendship? Our church is a group of friends, you know, that we worship together. We, we live out the mission of God together. We care for one another. How generous is God to give us good friends? You know, and if you're married, that gift of friendship includes your spouse because marriage is the most intimate form of friendship. Take a look at Genesis 2.21. It says, So then the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I just, once again, just want to like, notice how much God enjoys human beings and how involved he is. First, the Lord makes him very intimately, right? And then he just doesn't drop him there and leave and go do something on some other planet, right? He, he drops him there, and then yeah, after handcrafting him, and then he comes down, and as a good father, he comes and he teaches him, Adam, here's why you're here. This is your identity. Here's your purpose. This is why I created you. You know, your identity is in me. And your purpose is to do these things, right? And then, as a good counselor, he points out, like, you really should get married. It's really not good for you to be alone. We need to find somebody for you, right? And then, as a good anesthesiologist and surgeon, the Lord knocks out Adam and does a ribectomy and handcrafts Eve as the kind of the perfect matchmaker. He's got this, this woman for him, a helper fit for him. And then as the first father, he walks his daughter down the aisle and gives her away in marriage, right? And then he officiates the wedding. It's like he's here, and then he's here, and then he's over here. He's putting all these different hats on. He officiates the wedding, and then he gives the wedding toast. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It's like God's constantly interacting with these people because like a new parent, the Lord just can't take his eyes off of them. He loves them so much. He feels the same way about us. Marriage is the most intimate form of friendship. Look at Adam's reaction to his wife, Eve, in Genesis 2, 23. So he's knocked out, rib taken out. God makes the wife out of the rib, Eve out of the rib. And then this is his response. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And if you look at your Bible, you'll see that it's, it's formatted differently than the rest of scripture there. You know, you've got like prose and then you've got poetry. So this dude wakes up from anesthesia and thoracic surgery and immediately composes a poem to his wife. It's amazing, right? The falls ruined all that, you know? But the Lord is super generous, guys, to create marriage, to create a covenant bond. Take a look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Another amazing gift. It's really amazing, guys, when you think about it that God would create human beings to be able to have this gift of marriage, which is a lifelong covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Like the, the Book of Common Prayer says, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish till death do us part. How amazing is that? Isn't that incredible? God would give us that gift of like a covenant bond with another human being. This Tuesday will be 25 years for Tasha and I that we've been married, which is exciting. Yeah, you can clap for that. Mostly clap for her. He's like, oh, how did you? And we've been dating for 32 years, so we've known each other a long time. And we're not that old. So we're 48, so it was, you know, just wanted to make that clear. Um, 
And sometimes I'll be driving along, you know, driving our minivan, super cool. You know, you get married and then you get really cool. You used to have a truck to drive, now it's a minivan. And um, we had a Jetta, which was really cool. And sometimes I'll be driving along and I'll look over and I'll just be like kind of blown away like, why did she do this? You know, that she made a lifelong covenant bond to me is a weird thing. Like, why would any other human do that? You know, it's amazing if somebody would agree to that and, it's, and to mean it, and to mean it to the death. It's like incredible. But anyway, on, on top of all that, God creates sex as a covenant sign of the marriage union. Uh, Genesis 2.25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And we're going to do messages on each of these, just so you know. We're going to talk about, like, work. You know, what does the Bible say about work? We're going to talk about friendship. What does the Bible talk about that? We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to have a message specifically on sex in several weeks. But notice just right now with what it's designed for, and it's designed to be the covenant sign of the marriage union. It's a covenant sign. Notice what it communicates. It communicates, I'm giving my whole self to you. I know you fully, and I'll love you permanently. It's a covenant sign. We'll talk a lot about that later. But that's God's generous design. Isn't it amazing? Did we give all this thought, all this beautiful thought to these things? And I know that things have gotten a lot more complicated since. Things have gotten a lot more complicated since I've taught Genesis 2 in the past. I was thinking back to like, I've taught Genesis 2 for, I don't know, like 15, 20 years. And there's a lot more things you have to mention now. There's a lot more things you have to get into. It's, it's become more complicated. But God's generous design stands. And though our world has made it confusing and complicated, it's something that's beautiful and it's something worth striving for. It's worth striving for God's design. We've let sin into the world and, and made things difficult. And the reason why our, our relationships are so difficult is because our relationship with God is damaged. You know, what happened in our culture, what happened with humanity is we let sin in, our relationship with God was damaged, and then now our relationship with one another are damaged. If it unravels with him, it unravels all around us. As we rejected God as our creator, we've tried to be our own creator. You guys realize that? We've tried to be our own creator. We've tried to create our own identity and purpose. And this has become so obvious that you can't miss it now in our culture. I mean, in the 21st century, we have the added difficulty that our culture is constantly telling us that we are responsible to create our own identity and purpose. That you're like a blank slate, you're a canvas. You need to, in countless ways, it tells us every day, you're responsible to create your own identity and find your own purpose. I mean, I bet if you Googled find your own purpose, you could find plenty of memes, plenty of TED Talks. You could find all kinds of stuff telling you that, right? This is something the Lord just gave to Adam. He said, here's your identity. Here's your purpose. Your identity is being connected to me. Your purpose is to do these things. It was so simple. Now the world's saying, you know, you need to go out there. You need to create your own identity and find your own purpose. And it says, hey, we're all watching, so you better make it good. We all got our fingers right over the like button. Impress us. You know, make your life worth something. Do something that justifies your existence. Isn't that crazy? What pressure, right? It's a crazy amount of pressure. And, and we see it in very dramatic ways. I mean, one way is, you know, there's a lot of talk lately about puberty blockers and gender reassignment surgery and all this kind of stuff. And that's an extreme form of something we all do. It's an extreme form of self-creation, right? Create your own identity. Define your own purpose. I don't want to pick on people that deal with gender dysphoria. I'm just saying that is an extreme version 
of something we're all doing. We're all being tempted to create our own identity and, and find our own purpose in more subtle forms. And we were all taught that we're kind of a blank canvas and we need to make something of it. You know, and though we don't do it medically or surgically, we try to do it other ways. Um, Dr. Taylor Swift, in her uh, NYU, I don't want to pick on Taylor either. Okay, I know there's a lot of Swifties here, and I don't want to, I don't want to generate any controversy. And plus, I, mean, I generally like her, you know, like I don't have anything against her. Taylor Swift put it really succinctly in her NYU commencement address last month. The brilliance of Taylor Swift and why she deserves a doctorate is... She made it very clear what we all are taught, and this is what it is. I know it can be overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now, and how to act in order to get where you want to go. And then she says, I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Somebody said, commenting on that, on Taylor Swift's speech, said this, that it was an example of the paralyzing crisis of meaninglessness provoked by the burden of self-creation in an upbeat nutshell. <laughs> right? Isn't that what that is? It's the paralyzing crisis of meaninglessness provoked by the burden of self-creation in an upbeat nutshell, which is what she's good at. That's what the culture is offering us, right? It's offering us self-creation. It's offering us the paralyzing meaninglessness of that and pressure of that, and it's a terrible burden to bear, the pressure of creating your own identity and purpose. It's a, it creates massive anxiety and hopelessness. Have any of you tried it? You've all tried it. You may not know it, but you've all tried it. We've all tried it, and it's horrible. And we try to fill that abyss of identity and purpose that was left when, when we forsook our creator. We try and fill it in different ways. Maybe you try and fill it with your work. You know, your work, which was designed to be your most common opportunity to love and serve your neighbor, now becomes your opportunity to prove that your life is worth living. That's a heavy burden for work to bear, isn't it? <laughs> to prove your life is worth living? <laughs> to prove that you've actually made something of that blank canvas you were giving? Harold Abrams, the Olympic runner in Chariots of Fire, he said this about his running. He said, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. That's what his running was about. Is that what your work's about? You know, it'll show. It's not what work was designed to be. It was designed for us to love and serve our neighbors, not to justify our existence. Maybe you look at your friends for your identity and purpose. You know, you look to friends. Kids, you know, you kids that are with us, you're probably willing to do things you know aren't right because you want your friends to approve of you, you know? And, you know, it's a hard thing to not impress your friends or not be approved of by your friends. So there's things you might be willing to do because you're trying to find your identity and purpose in friends. And adults, we are not immune to peer pressure, are we? No. How many of us are a lot less Christian around certain friends of ours, right? It's a desperation. It's a hunger for identity of belonging. Maybe you think you can fill your need for identity and purpose with marriage. That's a tricky one, you know? People do, Right? If you're looking for your spouse to give you identity and purpose you can only find in God, I'll guarantee you one thing, you'll make both of you miserable, right? If you're trying to find your identity and purpose in your spouse, if you're trying to get them to give you that, something only God can give, you'll both be miserable. You'll be controlling and demanding and pouty and manipulative, and your spouse will never be able to meet your expectations because you're expecting something only God can provide. 
You'll be like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. And they will get tired of filling you. Right? You need to be filled with Christ. Or maybe you'll try to fill that void with sexual sin. Sex is an extremely powerful way to feel important for a little while. Right? There's that famous quote that they say is Chesterton, but sadly isn't. Which is, every man who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. You ever heard that before? Sadly, not Chesterton. Some guy, I don't even know who he is. But isn't that true? People use sex to find things they should be looking for in God. And just like any addiction, there's diminishing returns, right? There's more and more needed to get the same response. Or maybe you're going to look for your identity and purpose in your kids. Parents, prepare for pain. Maybe you're like, you know what? If my kids are happy and successful and good, I'll know my life meant something. People say almost that exact thing. It sounds good. It's terrible, right? We can't find our identity and purpose in our kids, as amazing gifts they are. You know, your kids are not made in your image to reflect your goodness, right? They are not created to reflect how great a parent you are. They were created to reflect how good a God he is, right? Your, your kids are not here to make a statement about your identity and your worth and your purpose. They're here to make a statement about who God is. And if you make them your purpose and identity, you will crush them under the weight of your expectations. Absolutely for sure. They can't bear it. They're not God. They're meant to be their own people. They're meant to be their own people released into the world for the glory of God, like the probably like an arrow shot out into the world. So after all those failed attempts, and you're like, okay, I resonate with at least one of those. So there's, we could look in work, we could look in friends, we could look in marriage, we could look in our kids, we could look in sex. After all those failed attempts, guys, what a blessing to find our identity and purpose in the Lord, right? To find our identity and purpose in the Lord. And when I say in the Lord, I mean actually in the Lord, through union with Christ, through connection with Jesus Christ, to be in him. Jesus is the missing piece at the center of your being. He's the one you were created for. He's the one you're meant to find your identity and purpose in. His absence is the reason why we can be so empty and anxious and hopeless and desperate. It's because we were made for union with Christ. And if we're apart from him, it's, it's misery. And it's right here in Genesis 2. Did you guys see union with Christ in Genesis 2? Take a look. Do you guys see it? Do you see it anywhere? You're like, hmm, where is it? I didn't see it either. You know who saw it? Paul saw it. Take a look at Ephesians 5.29. He saw it when he read Genesis 2. And it's shocking and amazing and wonderful. So Ephesians 5.29 says this. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, and he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You're like, oh, this is about marriage, about oneness in marriage. And then he says this in verse 32, This mystery is profound. And you're like, yeah, no kidding. And then he says, no, I'm talking about Christ and the church. He does this really interesting thing where he says, The ultimate meaning of Genesis 2.24, of a husband and wife becoming one flesh together, the ultimate meaning of that, is it's a picture of Christ in the church. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? Every marriage is a picture, a better one or a worse one, of Christ's union with us, with the church. And it's really cool because, you know, if I get Paul right here, he's, 
he's saying that it isn't like God created marriage and then later on he was like, what could I use as an illustration of Christ in the church? And then he's like, can you say that? Oh, marriage would be a good one. He didn't do that. First he thought of you, saving you through Christ, uniting you to Christ, and then he created this thing called marriage to be a picture of that. He thought of you united to Christ first, then he created marriage as a picture of it. Isn't that amazing? A marriage, as wonderful as it is, is a picture of Christ in the church. A marriage union is a picture of the union with Christ. And so when you first came to trust in Christ, or if it is today that you would come and trust in Jesus Christ, you got, or you will get, united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit permanently, the way marriage is designed to be, so that no man can separate, including yourself, right? That you'd be permanently united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And in that union, you would receive everything that Christ has would be yours. Just like when two people get married and, and both of their possessions are common property, right? That if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, the Spirit's united you to Jesus so that everything that Christ has is yours and everything you have belongs to Christ. And we got the better deal, by the way. So when we got united to Christ, all our sin debt became his. It's like marrying a woman that's like horribly in debt, right? All of our sin debt became Jesus's and he paid for it on the cross. And then in return, all of his righteousness becomes ours. And it's literally ours, just like, you know, all the possessions of a husband belong to the wife. It's such an amazing thing. Jesus is the ultimate Adam who was pierced in the side to give us life. And being united to him, we're forgiven and righteous so that now Christ looks to us, his church, and says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's the way he thinks about us. He thinks about us as his very body. Isn't that amazing? What kind of security is that? You know? Talk about identity. You know? Like, what would you want more than that? Or talk about purpose. United to Jesus Christ? What more are you looking for? Guys, this is what we have to offer the world. We can look at the world and we can look at the, especially the sexual brokenness of the world and, and things like that, and we can despise it and we can just be irritated, but we got to mostly realize that these are people deceived by the enemy and then encouraged in that through the culture and through their own flesh. We have something so much better to offer them, which is union with Christ. And if you're united to Christ and you have your purpose and your, your identity from him, then you have a very, very, very stable format from which that you can go out and actually have your life transformed and changed. What kind of rest? Don't you guys feel so much rest when you hear that you're united to Christ? Are you tired of the paralyzing crisis of meaninglessness provoked by the burden of self-creation? Even if it's in an upbeat nutshell. Are you tired of it? You're freed from it because you're in Christ. Like, who are you? What makes, what makes you worth anything? United to Jesus. I'm as worthy as he is because I'm in him. This is what we have to offer to a, a sexually confused and hurting world. But there's more. There's more. You know, not only are the assets in common where he took on our sin and we got his righteousness, but just like living with a really great spouse can be so strengthening to you. you know, some of you, your spouse is like total rock for you, so strengthening, so life-giving, that when you come to Christ, when you're united with Christ, you get Christ living with you now. You get Christ living in you. You live in Christ. And the Holy Spirit causes Christ's life to flow through you. This is the amazing thing with union with Christ, is that any time 
you live like Jesus, it's because Jesus was living through you. Christian life isn't just about imitating Christ. It's about Christ's life in us. And Christian life isn't just that we work really, really hard to live like Jesus. It's that we're constantly seeking for him to live through us. Do you see the difference in that? One is he's over there or he's in here or over there or he's in our mind or something like that. And we're like, okay, I'm thinking, what do you do? And I'm just going to try really, really hard to do what he's doing. Or you can look at it as Christ is in me and I am by the Spirit in Christ where he sits ascended on high. And what I need to do is seek him to live through me. Those are totally different things. And that's what union with Christ is about. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Because the Spirit unites us to Christ. We can abide in him. He lives through us. He does the living and the loving that recovers our relationships. He does it. Union with Christ, guys, is absolutely necessary for us to try to live what's here in Genesis 1 and 2. In union with Christ, we get the, the power from him to live it out. We get forgiveness when we fail. And we get his joy when others fail us. Right? So we get the power to live it. We get forgiven when we fail. And we get his joy when others fail us, when we deal constantly with the brokenness. So that's what we're going to look at as we go through this series next several weeks. I didn't mention this, Josh, but maybe Josh and Gabe and I, we could be up front and we could pray for anybody that wants prayer. Or we could do Q&A. That'd be fun. Uh, I don't know if I have all the answers. Maybe I shouldn't have volunteered for that. But we could do that each week. You know, we could talk more because you guys have questions. I don't have all the answers, but I could look for answers for these things. But we're living in a time where we probably need to like tune it up a little bit. Do you feel that? I feel like, wait a minute, I don't have all the tools for this. <laughs> when did the world get like this? One of the books I want to give away is a book called, it's by Carl Truman. It's called Strange New World. You know, Strange New World. And his thing in it is that the world's changed. And he shows it didn't just change over the last 10 years. It's been changing for hundreds of years. But this world's changed. And he says something in the book like, you may not like it, but it's where you live. <laughs> and you need to get equipped for it right? So that's what we want to do. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray for all the marriages and families that are here, that are represented here, and the ones to come. I just thank you for all the little kids that are in our church and bigger kids and those who are going to have families and have kids and their kids will have kids. And we just, Lord, we really want to hand down the deposit of the gospel faithfully to generation after generation. And part of that is, Lord, we really, really, really want to help our kids have even better marriages than we've had. We want, we want better for them. We want more glory to be given to you through their marriages than through ours. And Lord, we just pray that you'd equip us during the next few weeks. I know we all feel like the challenges are great in this culture, that things are confusing and difficult. And, and yet, Lord, we know that you're sufficient. Your word's sufficient. Your spirit's sufficient. We have the communion of saints throughout the centuries who've dealt with all kinds of things, and we know they will help us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would just um, equip your people. And we pray for our actual marriages now, our families now, our relationship with our kids that may be broken and difficult. We just pray that you will make us strong. We pray that your spirit would so fill all of us that the life of Christ would flow through us, that we would have a better expression of the beauty of Christ in the church for all the world to see.
We thank you for these good gifts. We pray that you would help us to enjoy them to your glory. May we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.